Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to keep up on the literature for you guys, and so we're spoon-feeding you the latest research all through your earbuds. Let's take a quick look ahead at everything we'll be covering from this week. First off, okay, so you have a pneumothorax, but do you really need a chest tube? Second, our friends in pediatrics intubate much smaller airways than us. What can we learn from them? Third, atropine is the reflex to treat bradycardia. Honestly, does it even work though? Fourth, the latest troponin algorithms under a microscope. And fifth, one more reason to be careful with electricity. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the lovable Vivian Lay, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. So here we have the first article titled, The 35 millimeter rule to guide pneumothorax management increases appropriate observation and decreases unnecessary chest tubes out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Wow, that article title really just gives you the punchline right there. Either way, we'll still go through it. Now, I don't know about you, but judging the size of a pneumothorax on a chest x-ray, it feels a little bit sketchy. Now, don't get me wrong, it's probably the best tool in many ways, given that it's minimal radiation, and it's a lot less work than trying to quantify with an ultrasound. So it's a pretty objective measure-ish, but we could do a little bit better. Traumatic pneumothoraxes less than 35 millimeters tend to do well with just observation. So why not put that to the test? To test that, we have a single-center retrospective study reviewing patients with traumatic pneumothoraxes over a two-year period after putting into place new guidelines to observe patients who have a pneumothorax that's less than 35 millimeters. This distance was measured by CT as the radial distance between the two layers of pleura. After they put this rule into place, they observed, instead of putting a chest tube, in about 10% more patients with pneumothoraces, from 85% to 95%. And accordingly, of course, they put less chest tubes, from 28% down to 18%. All that, and there was the same rate of observation failure, the same lengths of stay in the hospital, and there were no more mortalities. Now, I'm going to be honest, my knee-jerk reaction was to criticize this paper because it would mean that I would have to get CTs on these patients. But then, if you think about it, these are trauma patients. And if they have enough trauma that you think that they have a pneumothorax, I'm honestly probably going to scan them anyways. So it's pretty reasonable. In a spoonful, using a cutoff of 35 millimeters for pneumothoraces to decide if they need a chest tube means less chest tubes, which is good for patients, and no apparent increase in dangers. And then we have the second article titled Videographic Assessment of Tracheal Intubation Technique in a Network of Pediatric Emergency Departments, a report by the Videography in Pediatric Resuscitation Viper Collaborative out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So there is probably the most to learn from intubations that make you sweat. And you know what makes me sweat? Children that need intubation emergently. It's not that common, thankfully. But when it does happen, these are high-risk intubations. Kids don't crash very often, but when they do crash, they crash hard. What can we learn from this population? Well, this study looked at 500 intubations, about, from four tertiary pediatric emergency centers, which were prospectively observed with videos. That's pretty cool. They actually just recorded a bunch of intubations, saw what happened, and it would actually be pretty neat to kind of comb through this as a research project. You would probably see a lot of stuff and learn something. Anyways, from the data that they had, they had a first-pass success rate of 67%, which isn't huge, but 97% of cases still had a successful intubation. 
Videolaryngoscopy was used in 48% of cases. It'd be nice to know what kind of blade was on that video laryngoscope. You know, is this hyperangulated? Is this just a normal blade? I don't know. They don't say. Most of these were with video laryngoscopy for the entire intubation. Now, video laryngoscopy had the same rate of first pass success as direct laryngoscopy. Interestingly, intubations that took longer than 45 seconds had a significantly greater rate of hypoxia, five-fold higher. And I would have thought it would actually take a little bit more time than 45 seconds to see that significant difference. I mean, that's less than a minute. That said, the median time to successful intubation with video laryngoscopy was just six seconds. So when it's done well or when it's done right and things are going well, it's quick. Something that I think is often done in adult intubations is apneic oxygenation. But in this sample, it was actually really quite only rarely done. It was only done in 8% of cases. Now, I get that there's a risk of hyperoxygenation, but I feel like this group of kids particularly is at a higher risk of hypoxia. So we've talked about before that the patients most at risk of crashing peri-intubation, at least for adults, are the ones that you've prepped the least for. And I would put apneic oxygenation as part of preparation. Unless data comes out saying that it's bad, I hope that this practice starts to be, you know, gathering a little bit more uptake. In a spoonful, after reviewing a whole bunch of videos of people intubating children, these authors found no difference in the rates of first-pass success or hypoxemic events between video laryngoscopy and direct laryngoscopy. And watch out for intubations that take more than 45 seconds. These have a much higher rate of hypoxia. And then the third article titled Incidents of Bradycardia and the Use of Atropine in Pediatric Rapid Sequence Intubation in the Emergency Department out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. Honestly, the more I hear about atropine, the less I hear about it ever working. But let's try again. PALS from 2015 doesn't recommend giving atropine routinely pre-intubation in critically ill children, but it admits that there may be a population in which they could benefit from this. The 2020 PALS warns that atropine could mask bradycardia due to hypoxia, so watch for other measures of hypoxia. Now, what does that mean? Should we be giving it or not? This trial was a small single-center study of 62 children being intubated. Pre-treating with atropine was decided by the doctor, and 24% of them received it. This resulted in no significant changes in the incidence of bradycardia, 7% versus 4%. Only three of these patients had bradycardia during or within five minutes of RSI, which is about 5% of the cohort. So bradycardia was rare, and it's not clear how doctors were deciding who they wanted to give atropine to either. The ones that got it tended to be younger, and they probably had other things about them also. It didn't seem to be harmful, and from this study, such a small study, you know, maybe it could be helping some kids. Sounds like a much larger study or an RCT would be appropriate to answer this question. Any spoonful atropine pretreatment was not associated with lower rates of pediatric peri-intubation bradycardia in this tiny study. Fourth, accuracy of European Society of Cardiology, 0 and 1, 0 and 2, and 0 and 3 hour algorithms for diagnosing acute myocardial infarction out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Alright, so where I work we use high sensitivity troponins, and typically we get tropes drawn at time 0 and then again at 3 hours after that. Some guidelines, like those from the European Cardiology Society, say that you can do ultra-fast protocols to rule out MI. 
That would mean taking tropes at time zero, one hour, two hours, or three hours. But how accurate is this really going to be? Taking it at time zero and then just one hour later, is that going to be good? I don't know. I'm a little bit I, like I'm curious about this. So taking what we really want to know from this large systematic review and then a little help from the NNT, we have the numbers. They reviewed more than 32 studies, and that included more than 30,000 patients. Now, before I tell you a bunch of numbers, I'm really tempted to tell you the sensitivities and specificities of these tests, but I'm not going to. Two reasons for this. First of all, no one remembers any of the numbers that I say on podcasts. That's just everybody knows that. It's hard. Second, because sensitivity and specificity aren't really clinically useful numbers. What we really care about is positive and negative likelihood ratios. That is the number that actually acts on your pretest probability to give you your post-test probability. So I'm going to tell you likelihood ratios. Now, let's get on to the numbers. They found that if you took troponins at time zero and one hour later using this algorithm, they had a negative likelihood ratio of 0.01. That's pretty damn good and a positive likelihood ratio of 14, also pretty darn good. Now, if you took troponins at time zero and then two hours later, this was pretty similar, a negative likelihood ratio of 0.02 and a positive likelihood ratio of 21. Looking at the confidence intervals for these numbers, comparing zero and two hours to zero and one hours algorithms, I don't think that they would be significantly different. There's a lot of overlap there. Then finally, we have what I'm used to doing, which is zero and three hours, which actually performed the worst. It had a negative likelihood ratio of 0.09 and a positive likelihood ratio of 13. Now, of course, this study isn't law, and there was definitely heterogeneity between the studies. Some used clinical criteria and others just used troponin values. Also, sometimes the timing of the lab draws were way off their targets. In a spoonful, ultra-fast MI rule-out algorithms, I, they look viable. What a time-saver that would be, too. I'm not going to lie, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to use these. Then the fifth article, an adverse outcome with cardioversion of a wide complex tachycardia out of the annals of emergency medicine. So the main difference between defibrillation and cardioversion is synchronizing the machine with the QRS complexes. Usually, the computer does a pretty good job of this. I mean, the QRS is typically the biggest thing out there, so it's pretty obvious. But what if the computer gets it wrong? This article is a case report of a patient with unstable, wide complex tachycardia for which the physicians decided to cardiovert. After pressing shock, the patient got worse, degenerating into a pulseless polymorphic VTAC. And that's just, that's not an improvement. Don't worry though, they already had the pads on him, so they just did an unsynchronized shock and that brought him back. But what went wrong? There's an ECG that you can see up on our blog, but suffice to say that this was a pretty ugly wide complex tachycardia. Hard to say if it was really VTAC or if this was just SVT with aberrancy, but either way, the patient was unstable, so shock was the right call. The problem though was that the machine was picking up T waves and thinking that those were QRSs. That's an orchestrated R on T, which is exactly what you're trying to avoid when you're synchronizing. In all these cases, you'd be wanting to get a standard STAT 12 lead EKG. It might be honestly a bit much to ask you to compare that ECG and then double check it with the monitor to make sure that all of the markings for the synchrony are in the right places and that they're truly QRSs. But, you know, it's something just to just to think about in your mind. If you do have a minute, then it could be a little bit safer. In a spoonful, 
Careful during cardioversion, the computer doesn't always get it right. If your T's are really big, they could be mistaken for QRS's, and then your situation could get a lot worse after a shock, and not better. Alright guys, that wraps us up. Let's do the wrap-up. First off, we saw that, well, I mean, I like a good threshold. It makes life easier. Pneumothoraces less than 35 millimeters on CT can be observed without a chest tube, and this seems to turn out alright. Second, kids crash fast in emergency intubations. Taking more than 45 seconds was associated with bad outcomes. Outcomes were the same, though, if you used a video laryngoscope or a direct laryngoscope. So just pick your favorite. Third, this is a small study, but they did not detect any changes in the rates of bradycardia seen after the use of pre-intubation atropine. Fourth, a large systematic review sings praise for ultra-fast algorithms to rule out MI by taking high-sensitivity troponins at times as soon as 0.0 and one hour later. Then the fifth article, never trust the computer when it comes to ECGs. Everyone knows this. This case report had a computer sync to the T-wave and deliver a direct R on T, which made the patient much more unstable. And that's it for today, guys. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thanks, guys.